Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of the Concept to Creation podcast. I'm glad you're with me today. Uh, Terry Munson, my guest, is the founder and president of Foresight Incorporated. He founded Foresight way back in 1992, ironically the same year I started my business. Then Foresight was known as CSL, Contamination Studies Laboratories. Terry has extensive experience with, low, with how cleanliness issues are affecting product reliability for electronic hardware. He is the primary developer of ion chromatography analysis uh, for use in the electronic manufacturing industry and is an active member, I should say a very active member of IPC. Terry's insights have been seen in various industry trade publications as well as at many technical conferences. It can be said that uh, Terry marches in front of the band using his unique experience and cleanliness testing methods, many of which have made their way into internationally recognized standards. Terry has been quoted saying, everything is fixable. You just have to understand what's causing the problem. So today we're going to attempt to understand Terry as he joins me as my guest on this Concept to Creation podcast. Welcome, Terry. Glad you're with me today. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you. So uh, you and I started our businesses in the same year. What, what month did you start? April 1st. Ah, you beat me. Okay, I started in August. April 1st, there's a, that, that's an ominous day to start your business, right? It, it was, uh, it was one of those, you know, option out clauses. If, if it failed, I could just say oh, April Fool's Day. So there you go. There you go. And I'm wondering if at any time during your business journey, did you feel, was there a time when you felt foolish, you know, like for, for starting it? Or did you no. always have confidence that it would be successful? No, I saw the need and that the, the opportunity was always there and no one was servicing it. So I felt like, you know, all I had to do was listen to the engineers who had the problems and learn what they needed to make them successful. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's, start, about, let's start at the beginning, uh, maybe even before the beginning. Uh, what were you doing before C, uh, CSL, as Foresight yeah. was known then? Mm -hmm. I worked at uh, Delco Electronics um, for five years doing what I'm doing now, basically learning about manufacturing processes, um, applying ion chromatography to both the fabrication and assembly processes, and then working through what does the data really mean? Where is good and bad? Where's, where are the problems? And we were still in the days of rosin fluxes and freon and one one and trichlorothane. So, you know, from an assembly standpoint, I learned a lot about um, what we did. And, and I was blessed to spend those five years at Delco learning about assembly and, and fabrication and running the plating lines and, and just getting, you know, deep into each of the processes that we still did in house. Yeah, interesting. And then from Delco, you uh, started CSL or? Yeah. Yep. So uh, there's I, one point when you walk away from a perfectly good job from a steady paycheck 
and and then you jump into the deep end of the pool. Uh, it's been described as the deep end of the cold pool. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you um, did, did you plan that for some time? Was 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 there just a spark that said I I need to do this? Uh, was it how calculated was that move? It was fairly calculated. Um, I spent a year networking within the IPC. Um, going to committee meetings, talking to uh, people that I had met, other technical leaders in the industry, um, and you know, gauging the response. If I started a lab, would you guys use us? Um, so it was kind of feeling the industry out. Would they feel that they needed that 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 new level of of understanding? And I got a great response. I got a lot of people saying, "Yeah, we'd be happy to." And and you know, Honeywell was my eighth client um in in the study and boeing was number three and so yeah it having a network of great companies to kind of start with really helped the 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 emotion behind setting up and running the business planning it was i needed an eye chromatograph i needed to have some things and i networked with the 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 manufacturers to say okay what can we do at a very low cost you know, and how can we put technology that I couldn't take from Delco? I published what we were doing, you know, in the technical papers, had the approval from the legal side um, to talk about what we were doing. Um, but when I left, I couldn't take anything with me. So no limits, no no uh, techniques, no understanding of what the, the approach was. Um, so it was go back in and start from scratch. And I was able to get Dionix at the time to loan me some equipment and say, here, here's some stuff, play with it for a little while, and, and then we'll see what happens. And Dionix and is the manufacturer of on chromatography equipment, correct. is that right? Yeah. yeah. Which isn't cheap. So, Th- those things no. are six figures, somewhere yeah. six figures, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with a very small system and a very very focused approach. I was able to pull together the right tools. I found a couple auctions that I could buy some lab equipment from um, that that it was pennies on a dollar. So it worked out really well. I drove to Chicago and brought back stuff in a big trailer out of a, after a big auction. So it, it gave me the foundation to what we were doing. I rented a building, um, leased a building for a three year period and they gave us, I, I could work it out. So I had no rent the first year. Um, so I was able to network and negotiate a number of things and that April 1st, um, opening, I had three staff members and I said, I can't pay you. We, we're going to do this as a, as a, a little exercise and see if it works. And, uh, you know, I have two of those people still left. One is retired and, and one still works for me. Um, so it, it was a good beginning and, and everyone chipped in and worked hard and it, it felt like a, um, uh, an opportunity that everyone saw that the handwriting on the wall meant, let's go make some money and help solve problems. And you had, you know, I would imagine you were on a mission, a timed mission because 12 mm-hmm. months from April 1st, you had to start it, 12 months from mm-hmm. April 1st, things got real, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, rent's not free anymore. I'm sure the equipment company probably didn't intend to give you a machine forever, right? They somehow expected a return on that. So right. you, had a, you had a runway. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and we, we spent a lot of time negotiating with clients because 
we didn't know how to charge. That was the biggest concern was how do you charge for what we do? Um, you know, and we kind of followed some of the other labs, um, uh, analytical models early on where you charged $100 per sample that you ran through the IC. Well, we found out very quickly that that didn't go very far and that it didn't cover the, the, the analytical work as well as the engineering work behind interpreting all the data, writing the report, doing all the things that we needed to do. So uh, within that first six months, we figured out how to charge, how to pay attention to what the client really needed versus you know, what we wanted to sell them. Because you know, there's always two different things that, that go on there. Um, but paying attention to what they need, understanding what the residue issues were at the time, and then focusing on, okay, let's put together a quality document that they could share with their management and their suppliers that that would. So that was where we found that that really focused up approach at getting, getting good reports into the customer's hands. You know, when we... Um started our company, you talk about, you know, how do you set your prices? When I, when I first started my company, I left a similar company, right. And, and started mm -hmm. my own. Um, but I didn't know how to start, how to set my prices. And yep. what I ended up doing is I did a real quick survey of what all of our competitors were charging. And I figured, okay, I have a strategic decision. I can either go lower or mm -hmm. I can go higher. If I go lower, no doubt, the competition will go lower still, and then I will go lower still, and it's a race to the bottom. So I decided, okay, they're probably not going to go higher. So I just made sure that we were a few hundred dollars higher than everybody. And right. figure if we're going to lose on the price, we're going to lose on the price. You know, it's that fail fast uh, uh, concept. <laughs> exactly. It's like we're going to fail yeah. fast if we're going to lose on price. And we don't want customers that are only price concerned. We want to, you know, we want partners. So uh, we went high, and uh, that that is – you know, that was scary because, you know, I had a lot of self-doubt. I didn't have the confidence that the stuff we made was any good. Uh, and, and I certainly didn't have the confidence other people would think it was very good. And, but what do you do, right? So you have to go one way or the other. And I'm reminded that in the uh, Great Recession of 2008, uh, mm. as it's now referred to, the, in, in the retail world, you know, the retail world was decimated. But there was a mm -hmm. handful of segments that, did well. And they were all the high end segments, the Nordstrom, right. the Saks Fifth Avenues, they kept selling clothes, the targets and the JC Penney and the Macy's all tank. Well, actually targets and Walmart's did okay. So either the very high or the very low were successful. Right. Most of yeah. us can't afford to be that low because we can't invest billions into the infrastructure to be able to run 5% profit margins. So right. everyone likes to be in the middle because it's safe. And, and everyone's afraid to go high. But anyway, that was experience that I had. Yeah. And, and we had something similar because we weren't selling a product. You know, we had to define, you know, what we were selling and it was the, the, the report, the education, the, the support for the engineer who had the problem and had to explain it to his management, what they needed to do to, to identify the problem and then what they needed to do for a corrective action. So we worked through all of these other, um, secondary issues, but realize that our report is our ability to go in and educate the client, give them the information in a way and spend time looking at, okay, what are the right images that we need? And that's where I really started spending more money was in, you know, 
microscopes and cameras and, and looking at the, the effect of, of what we could see. Buying my first uh, scanning electron microscope was a terrifying event. Um, and it was used and refurbed. So it was, it was going through all those elements. It's, it's understanding what the customer needs. 90% of it from my perspective is being able to see what the real problem is and then understanding how to correlate that data to that information. You had a choice between a second house or a scanning electron microscope, right? Exactly. <laughs> and you chose yeah. the latter. Uh, yeah. So uh, how did it, I understand when you started, you had a year of free rent, you had some employees who were willing to, you know, uh, Go without sweat pay. equity kind of, kind of thing, yeah. or at least sweat uh, return on investment. Um, where'd you get the startup capital? There's still a need for, you know, you still have to pay electricity bill. I don't think the, the electric company is going to go, yeah, I'll give you a year for free, right? So No, I basically had uh, saved and, and put back about $15,000. Um, and we were able to start working um, and basically using that $15,000. And then I took some of that money and, and met with some um, small time investors that I knew people that would say, okay, and they gave another $15,000. So we had some, some early startup capital, but it was only $30,000 to start this ball rolling down the hill. And I lived on credit cards for that first year. My wife uh, was great at being able to juggle and manipulate um, the, the funds and we just kept it clean and simple and, and, and it worked. And did your wife work also uh, during that time, no, like somewhere else? she was staying home with three kids. So wow. So she did not work, yeah. Wow, so well, she worked. She worked hard, but just not... She uh, worked very hard, yes. She didn't get just paid get that Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we were able... We were very blessed. It's, that's all I can say. Okay, so we you were blessed with um, some investment money, with some savings, mm -hmm. with some free rent, with some generous equipment... Uh, uh, people with some generous employees. Um, those were the, the, the uh, blessings in your first few years. What were the challenges? Uh, beyond all those blessings, clearly there were challenges. Uh, you don't have to put them in alphabetical order, you know, sure. Dewey Decimal System, but um, just what are some of the basic challenges that you experienced, particularly in those early well, days? In the early days, documenting the, the procedures getting the process down that we knew, but taking time and documenting, okay, here's how we're going to do the extraction. Here's how we're going to label the samples. Here's how we're going to identify the, the, the matrix as it's going through the auto sampler. You know, all of those things uh, were, were critical, but I think the biggest challenge was figuring out how to start doing the sales and, and talking to clients and letting them know we were available. Um, there was some, some very minimal marketing, um, but it was just cold calling clients that I knew um, from my uh, IPC platform and saying, hey, we're available. If you have a problem, give us a call, let's talk about it. And we just had a great response. So the, ch the biggest challenge was getting over the fear of making that cold call, dealing with how do you communicate what we're doing? So the thing I found the most effective was writing papers. So we started writing papers very early on and just talking about the problem and the way we were addressing it and what the, the outcome was. You strike me as a very confident person. Your personality it kind of exudes confidence. It, it, 
you may not agree with that, but that's that's the way I I take it, and I'm sure many others. Um, and and to start a business, you have to be a little nuts and a little confident, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there has to be some ego at play. There has to be, you know, all of that. And um, was there ever a point in your business where your your confidence was shaken, where even your ego, your passion, your your experience at Delco and and other other uh, experiences, just you know, that wasn't enough. Were the challenges in business bigger than your ego and confidence and passion had been previously? In the sales side, working through, you know, I know I have good projects this month. Who's going to have a major failure next month was something that just constantly just gnawed at my my innards. And it just shook me to the core. Um, and by doing it, every month and understanding that okay this month it's an automotive client who's got a big problem next month it's going to be a telecom guy that's going to have a problem the next month it's a medical client that's got a problem you know it's it's relying on these customers that that find out about us and that we work with and solve problems that keep coming back and that's the thing that really blew me away which was we would solve problems engineers would take our information leave one company they'd go to another company and then call us because hey we have the same problem but just having that fear we're not going to have any more problems to deal with was something that took me a long time to get past i I remember that feeling you know we were in a similar business you know we we Mm -hmm. make machines that uh try and put you out of business (laughs) (laughs) i like I know, I know. Uh, and and uh, the flux companies make, make products that are trying to put all of us out of business. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we make, for the audience who thinks I'm, we're competitors, we're not, we're actually allies. Um, we make cleaning mm-hmm. equipment. You, you do um, forensic analysis on, on failure mechanisms, uh, usually due to contamination. So uh, in, in my world, I used to think that at some point, someone's going to invent a flux that truly under any condition, never needs to be cleaned. Right. We came close to that. Uh, and, or electronics are gonna go with a solderless, uh, maybe you know, conductive adhesive, which our industry has played with, which will totally mm-hmm. eliminate the, the need for any cleaning, which will prevent any contamination-related failure mechanisms. And both of us would, would be you know, greeters right. at Walmart, right? That would be our plan B, exactly. right? Because <laughs> basically there's no plan B. So, uh, and then, I realized that after 29 years, at least in my case, 29 years in your case, mm-hmm. you know, in your case, people still make mistakes. People still have process problems uh, that are bigger than them. And, and there's an increasing supply of those. And, and mm-hmm. boards have gotten so uh, small and miniaturized that even, even a fraction of the contamination compared to mm-hmm. 29 years ago is enough oh, to yeah. cause a board to fail. So I think there's plenty of business for both of us uh, for, yeah. Yeah. for the foreseeable future was there a time though you know other than laying in bed wondering if uh, that's the last problem with a you know last customer with a problem you'll ever have uh was there ever a time when you came so close to the edge when you went this is it or you can't see a way out of it and then of course you know obviously you're still here so we know the we know how the story ends but but was there ever a time when when you really thought you were in peril no no we've been extremely uh fortunate that we haven't hit that hard wall. Um, the 2008 um, recession was some of our best growth uh, because all these big companies were shutting down their labs 
but they still needed the analysis and they still needed to be able to solve problems and ship product. So we got more and more work from, especially the automotive and medical guys. Right. So, well, you're an outsource uh, supplier. Yeah. So an outsourced supplier. So obviously, uh, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I would imagine also not just the recession, but the, um, the atrophy in our business, the, the, the people mm -hmm. who are leaving and oh. not being replaced, the, the sages, the, subject matter experts uh, that yep. are leaving companies not being replaced by an equal. Uh, right. I, I, I find a lot of, for better or for worse, in many cases it's for worse, but I find a lot of manuf a lot of OEMs now are now reaching out to their vendors for technical yep. information, not subject matter experts that are unbiased, right? So they're coming right. to, um, they're just going out to, to, to the people who can make money selling them things based on their answers, you know, basically a very biased group of people to give them mm -hmm. advice. And uh, that's, you know, that advice might be perfect advice. It might be less perfect advice, uh, but they're, they're definitely outsourcing. And right. Uh, which, well, they, they've outsourced in what my perspective is we've, the OEMs have outsourced so much of what real manufacturing issues are that that they don't have the technical expertise anymore uh, to understand what the potential problems are. But these contract manufacturers and the subcontract manufacturers have very limited funds to have uh, process experts in. So it, it kind of becomes a Lego building uh, process. You know, I'm going to put a red Lego here and a blue Lego here and it's going to stick. And, and if I have a problem, I'll go to the Lego manufacturer and say, what happened? Um, and, and there's, there's very few of those people left. And it just, it, it's to the point now where the OEMs, the CMs, the fabricators, um, we have uh, a lot of discussions anymore and they're, they're surprised to say, well, this didn't outgas in this accepted and proven qualified process, but it outgassed and, and failed over here. Why? Well, because what historically worked over here wasn't in a semi-sealed or, or a sealed system, and you didn't realize that, that you had secondary cure mechanisms, and now I've got formate acid, uh, formic acid forming um, due to a staking compound in a sealed system that worked fine in an open system. So it's, right. it's not understanding those variables. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So here's a question for you. It's kind of a morbid oh. question, but I know okay. based on your experience, you can handle this. Uh, so you worked um, back from 1985 to 1988 at Duke Memorial Hospital. And one mm -hmm. of your positions there was in, uh, you, you worked as a lab technician and you did autopsy investigations. So yep. uh, your work really hasn't changed that much, except, no. except uh, I mean, sometimes you are looking at organic contamination, but you're looking at both now organic and inorganic back then it was mostly organic um, but it's hard to believe that your past experience in autopsy investigations hasn't helped you in some way in your current role in investigating the cause of death yeah. uh, of a electronic assembly well, so yeah so uh, how did that right how did that training how did the just the you know not not so much the biology but the methodology of autopsy investigations help you in your mindset for failure analysis investigations? What we were trained when we were doing the work for the pathologist was we would compartmentalize each of the key organs 
and break them down and then lay them out so that the pathologist could come through and take a deeper look at each of the samples in each of the areas we were looking at. We would section the heart into multiple sections and we would look at key things in the valves, we would look at the key things in the septum, and we would spend time with each of these, these areas. So it allowed me to take that same mindset of compartmentalizing. And when we get a failure in, the first thing we do is we create a, an autopsy area. We have, uh, and, and we just disassemble everything, document everything, label everything, put it in a, a structure that's very similar to that of an autopsy table. So your company is a service company of last resort for many mm -hmm. people, right? Yeah. Um, they wait until something breaks. They can't figure out the cause of it and they go, fine, call Terry, right? Um, so how do you go about, or have you gone about attempting a transition from being a company of last resort or a service of last resort to more of a preemptive service? Is that, has that been a, a strategy? Is that a successful, a failed strategy? What's the status of that? The status is it's it's ongoing, and and we've been very successful with some of our our key clients. You know, we solve a problem, make the engineer look good. He gets promoted, he moves up the food chain, um, and in many cases, he remembers us. He brings us back in to deal with more problems. But we've been educating and spending more time in the educational platform um, and teaching these engineers and their their younger engineers. Um, about their own processes. So we've had a number of clients bringing us back in as a uh, education side of things to walk the process, to qualify new processes and look at the effects of how their minor changes are impacting their long-term reliability. And so it's been a, a kind of a, a blessing of both. We, we work with clients enough to create a um, foundation where the the understanding of their current process is and then we start moving them forward to say okay here's where you need to move things to um, to affect the, the the reality of change so yeah it's been a, a kind of a, a combination of fighting fires dealing with the, the big failures and then working with clients that we've I mean we have one uh, large medical manufacturer that we've done over 830 projects for in just the five year period that we've been working with them. Um, you know, so it's, it's helping them deal with process and having the C3 um, uh, where we're doing localized extraction and process control. And there's over 400 of these units in the field. We can deal with the process monitoring um, aspect so we can work with the supply chain deal with the effects and then work through where we want to take that technology and deal with the, the optimization of the process so yeah it, it's an ongoing challenge though sure yeah absolutely cleaning in general not to get too specific technically specific on this show um, which is more about business than the technical side but just to lay out the, the the kind of the ground rules in our industry uh, cleaning is a last resort you know people mm -hmm. are are uh, cleaning something that says no clean on the jar right almost like don't clean like an instruction manual and so uh, you know cleaning is one of those things that doesn't have to happen it's optional but it adds reliability and but people don't right. want to spend the money unless they know there's a problem they, they basically take the path of least resistance and at the last if the path of least resistance is to hire you or buy my equipment then they'll do it um, but they 
they don't want to do it in a, in, in any other uh, for any other reason. So many times when entrepreneurs uh, start a company, they're blessed with a level of ignorance. I certainly was blessed with a level of ignorance. I didn't know what I didn't know, and that's probably what allowed me to start the company, right? I didn't know how difficult it would be. I didn't know how close to the edge we would come. I didn't know the sleepless nights that were in front of me. Um, was there anything in your business experience that you didn't expect when you made that decision to walk away from a perfectly good paying job and dive into the cold, deep end of the pool? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing, you know, in, in, was the the scale and the scope of the problem that that I was walking into? Um, the industry didn't have good tools to say, okay, here's where the uh, the reliability elements um, really rely. They didn't understand where the critical parameters were with the current process of rosin fluxes and solvent cleaning. And when we made the transition to no cleans and water soluble fluxes, we didn't understand some of those changes. Um, and then now that we went to lead from leaded to lead free, we didn't understand those elements. And then now we're making things in a smaller package. But one of the biggest things is we've gotten rid of redundancy and we've taken the circuit sensitivity um to a much greater scale so now any residue that you have in a critical area with a porous solder mask can be a problem for that functional circuit so to me it was the scale of the problem that i did not realize was good because i figured at five years we deal with these circuit board clearance issues the ipc would would take care of it we put some specs in place we put some numbers out there and we'd have the the industry moving that direction and i'd go work on plating i was focused on on dealing with plating issues and wafer fab issues i wasn't even thinking that circuit board reliability and and solder quality reliability and mechanical structure um, were going to even be part of what we we're doing you know, I was content to have a small, you know, three to five man lab and, and deal with what we dealt with. Um, but here is 29 years later, I've got 20 people here and I've got our 21 people on staff. And, and uh, it, there's a lot more work than what we can really handle. Interesting. Here you thought that you could solve the electronics problem with a few years of education and, and analysis and, and the, and the problem grew bigger, right? The, yes. Not due to lack of effort on your part, just due to the, this exponential well, just, yeah, decrease in, in yeah. spaces between components and just a perfect storm of higher reflow temperatures, yeah. smaller uh, real estate, uh, finer pitch, all these things, uh, faster mm -hmm. clock speeds, all these things. Internet of Things, which is taking electronics that have no business being in what they're in and putting them in it and sending them out to the cold, cruel world and harsh yep. environments and all that stuff. I, yeah, yeah, we're going to be busy for a long time. Yes. Well, so, my kids are going to be even busier. So that's, that's where we want to take it is that I'm giving them, because I've got three children who work for me and, and uh, really going to take over. So it's, it's, they've got a, a long future ahead of them. That's interesting. I've talked to a couple entrepreneurs on the show whose kids – you know, uh, ran <laughs> far oh, yeah. away. They have no interest in being in the business. In fact, um, uh, but the irony is they took it over from their father, right? Yeah. So, but their kids, somehow the, the chain broke. Um, if you're in the board fabrication business, oh. if you're a kid whose father or mother owned a board fabrication business, you grew up drilling holes in boards. That's kind of your yeah. rite of passage, right? 
What are your yeah. children's rite of passage in the business? Are they sweeping floors? Cleaning. Are they doing investigations? No. Cleaning circuit they... boards. No, they clean circuit boards. Yeah, that was the, you know, when they turned 15 years old, they, they came in and because I was telling people their circuit boards were dirty and most fabricators or contract manufacturers didn't have a solution and they didn't understand how good di water worked and how good saponifier worked and so i bought um uh, used inline cleaners modified them took them to a low pressure high flood uh, process and we would contract clean and we have a division where we just do contract cleaning and i'm part of uh, a number of manufacturers processes because they don't want to invest the money into the equipment and deal with the the, the waste and, and the water quality and the, the development of, of their own DI water system. So, yeah, so our kids cleaned um, and, and process boards and, and swept floors and, and just kept things, you know, moving around here. Interesting. There was a uh, image coming up, a video coming up. I, I showed this already, so sorry for the redundancy, but I, there was a, someone cleaning a board there. Is that, yeah. is that one of yours? Yeah, that's one of our, no, that's not one of my sons. That's, ah. that's uh, one of my employees that, but he's, yeah. Yeah. My, my sons were, uh, at that time they were learning how to cross section. So that's okay. the other thing that my kids are, have, have become, uh, uh, excellent at. Is that is an art form. Cross-section. You yeah, can't just like, can't read a book cross, you know, a dummy's guide to cross sectioning and, and perform a successful cross section. Right. Yeah. It's a combination of artwork, uh, artistry, mm-hmm. precision, and luck, needle in a haystack kind of luck, right? To, well, it, 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 it starts depends there. what you're looking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It starts there. And, and the, the, the thing that we found is that we eliminate any kind of power head or, or those types of, of automated tools and our, our hand processing. And we've developed some techniques that allow us to, we'll pot the parts in the circuit board before they're removed from the board and do things in a way that reduces the risk of damage when we take them apart. Um, and a lot of people are surprised by that. And we're like, well, I, I don't want to add any more risk or contamination to the effect of the, the, the solder joint. So why wouldn't I protect it and isolate it first? So, but my kids have all learned that and, and are uh, critical. And my daughter is my uh, ISO uh, management rep, and she's the business side of things. So she writes all my draft reports and does all those things. So she gets to see the other side Excellent. of it. So. so your exit strategy would be uh, someday the kids uh, give you a giant uh, box of money and, and, and put you in an RV and wish you a good trip around the country, right? Yep, that's that, it. That's what they want to do. Excellent. That's wonderful. Uh, so one thing I was impressed when I watched some of your company videos is that you put a lot of emphasis um, on the rather than putting emphasis on the specific technology, like Mm -hmm. we have this brand of machine that performs to this standard, you basically promote the benefits of your service as opposed Mm -hmm. to the technical side of the service. Is that by design? Is that, is that, did you start off doing that or did you realize that, that your audience had no comprehension of the, of the specifics? Absolutely. They, they have no comprehension of, of the, the, the technology. And I think that the industry has been so um, overwhelmed by, you know, this type of technology or this type of technology. And they really want to get to the meat of, of what the problem is and how to address the problem. 
And, and we've found that to be the most effective way of communicating, you know, our ability to help solve that problem. Excellent. What's the difference between how you started running your business and how you run it today? What are, what are one or two or three contrasts? Um, Besides I maybe worked, sleep better and you know, sl yeah, that you well, sleep yeah, better now, right? Yeah. Well, I had more hair back then. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it started out with, uh, uh, understanding that, I couldn't do everything. And that came about midway. You know, I, I would, I, I mean, I worked on every single report, every single project. I would help break it down. I would help put it in the lab. We'd analyze the key areas. And I learned a, a very valuable lesson that if I didn't start sharing and teaching and educating and letting other people take on responsibility, that I wasn't going to have a functioning company um, at the end of this. And if I didn't give them the respect and the understanding of what we were trying to sell to the client, then I couldn't do that myself. So giving up some of the responsibilities has been the biggest challenge and the biggest transition that we've done probably in the last uh, 10 years. So yeah, that's, that's the big, the big change, the big takeaway. I would imagine when you first started your business, you spent a hundred percent of your time working in your business, you know, chief cook and bottle washer at the early mm -hmm. days, right? How much from a percentage standpoint, 50, 50, 80, 20, whatever, how much time do you think you work on your business today versus in your business today? I'd say we're probably 60, 40, 60, 40 on, on your business, 40% yeah. In the, in the trenches. Business. Yeah. Yeah. And do you see that yeah. going to, you know, a, a higher ratio uh, over time? Or do you yeah. think that you, your skills and your experience are still key in the business? I think they're key in the business still. And it's because I have a unique ability. Um, some people call it a defect. Um, <laughs> but I see things in, in, constructed three dimensions um, without taking them apart. I think through, see through. So I'm trying to teach them, okay, the first thing we do with anything that we get in-house, any circuit board, any system, is we just look at it. You document it, what you see, you see what you know, and then you compare the things that are working to the things that aren't working. And we always try to get a good exemplar um, sample, but half the time we aren't able to get that. Um, but it's just teaching people how to look at things in a way that allow them to understand how that system went together, where yeah. the fracture mechanics are. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, your company specializes in delivering good news and bad news mm -hmm. to people, right? And I would imagine a typical scenario is, uh, hi, I'm Terry. The good news is we found the source of the problem. The bad news is you need to stop screwing up. You need here's all the things in your process that are causing this problem, right? So it's a little bit of candy, a little bit of sledgehammer, right? Yeah. Um, how have, have how have you balanced that fine art between delivering good news and bad news, and basically someone paid you to mm -hmm. for you to tell them how they're screwing things up, and uh, and then you know the, how do you balance that uh, and and knowing that you want them in the future if they have a similar mm -hmm. need. So you don't right. want to alienate them. 
Well, it starts with education about the architecture of the components. You know, if you're looking for flux entrapment, say uh, one of the most uh, uh, beautiful cost-effective uh, products that we we deal with on a regular basis is a, is a QFN, uh, low standoff bottom terminated uh, four-sided device that, that does a great job of trapping flux residues. And whether you clean it, whether you don't clean it, how high it is off the board, if you've got thermal vents, by educating them about the problems that that system creates, we're able to give them good news about their failure because it's understandable. And that's what I found to be the most effective is teach them that it's the process interaction issue and it's not somebody screwing up. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Just about every business suffers cash flow problems at one time or another. Um, did you experience in your history uh, cash flow solutions and how did you overcome that? We, we learned how to sell receivables um, and uh, we learned to get receivables. Um, we know that some automotive manufacturers are slower to pay um, instead of, you know, the 45 days that we'd like to have or 90 days, they'll go 120 plus. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just having a, uh, and that's one of the things I learned early on. I can't run the business side without good business people on my side. So I hired early on a, a full-time CPA. So having a CPA that will deal with all those issues constantly, just focus on talking to the right people within the organization and, and moving money um, to, to cover the things that we need to cover. Um, and then finding the grant programs. And, and you know we've done a number of SBIR and SBA and MDA and um, DOD contracts. So working with those uh, kind of programs and knowing you never get paid on time, you know, with some of those things. So we, we've we've learned that that you know working with our banks, having a good line of credit, being able to buy things, pay them off, that is the the, the biggest uh, success that we've had from a business standpoint is working with the the, the banking system, um, and you know they're constantly coming to us and say, okay what do you need to uh, loan for this year, you know, and, and what can we project and, and where can we, you know, do you want to buy a skating electron microscope or do you want to buy a CT uh, scan system? And, and it's like, no, not really, not right now. <laughs> but, you know, they, they keep coming back to us and going, you know, what can we do to help you? So it's, it's building that relationship with the banking system that has been just a, a, a huge blessing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the uh, irony, as we talked about on the show before, the irony is, um, you know, in order to get a line of credit from a bank, you have to prove you don't need it. And then the moment you actually can prove you need it, you don't qualify for it, right? It's that catch-22. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your company, um, a big part of your company, I believe, uh, is, is performing investigations, which are generally on-site. Mm -hmm. So someone has a problem, you send the team out and... Uh, one or two people, and they crawl through their workspace. They look through their records. They look over people's shoulders. They figure out the, they in the lab. They they do autopsies on on failed parts, uh, and they look for smoking guns. When COVID hit, when the global pandemic hit at the beginning of 2020, 
pretty much all that travel shut down. And mm -hmm. even if you had a way to get there, most of the uh, lobby doors were locked, right? And so how did you pivot from, I mean, clearly you're still in business and you mentioned that, that um, the recession helped your business. I don't know if the pandemic did or if there was plenty of business that you just couldn't do because you couldn't physically get on site. So what was your, your strategy? What is and was your strategy for the pandemic and the travel restrictions that uh, were a result of it? As soon as the restrictions came into play, we found that, that we were going to have to be creative. Um, so where we need to be on site and see processes, we got approval from manufacturers and from their management um, to do video links, to do, you know, FaceTime with iPhones and look at the process from that perspective. We would work with engineers that, that were comfortable with the process and, and talk through, okay, what did you do here? What did you do here? And how did this change um, occur? And, and we really were just deep diving with the communication side of things. Um, we brought on uh, uh, one of our, our uh, support staff is uh, bilingual in, in Spanish. So we, we spent a lot of time working with the operators on the floors in, in some of our Mexico operations and uh, had him make sure that we were interpreting everything correctly and that he could communicate with them correctly. So uh, a lot of Teams, a lot of Zoom, a lot of FaceTime, uh, all that um, became creative at, at seeing what's going on with the process. Are you back in the field again? Uh, some. We've been to Mexico twice. Um, we've I've sent Eric to uh, Minnesota. Um, but, you know, right now we're, we're reducing some of our travel just because of the Delta variant issues. Um, Eric's on his way up to Chicago tomorrow um, for the IPC uh, summer con. Um, but beyond that, we're just, we're still doing a lot of Zoom and a lot of, lot of uh, Teams meetings. Sure. So everyone has competition. Uh, has your, well, what is your stance on competition? Not specifically, not you know, sure. mentioning names or anything, that, that doesn't really matter. But just in general, what's your stance on competition and has that stance changed from the time you started your company to today? When we first started, we knew that, that uh, there were a lot of labs out there. I didn't realize a lot of labs and, and part of the reason I founded my lab was I wanted to be a more of an expert in the technology side of what we were doing so we could use the technology as a tool to interpret the process effects. There was not a lot of competition there. Um, today, there's still not a lot of competition there. Um, and I welcome competition. I welcome someone else to, to develop a, a, a localized extraction tool um, to, to compete with the C3 um, so we can actually get an IPC method that isn't just a single source supplier. Unfortunately, there's 27 other IPC test methods that have single source suppliers or equivalent. And, and so, you know, it's, it's having those kinds of uh, uh, opportunities to work with competition and to work with other labs to, to bring, you know, more knowledge to the, to the industry. That's, to me, it's about education and understanding and, and ways of, of doing things that, that help predictable impact positively on the process and reliability. For those uh, of my audience who are not part of the electronic assembly industry, IPC, of course, is our one of our uh, two or three uh, 
association type uh, industry uh, or industry associations and IPC yeah. also is a standards based organization. We create many of the standards, most of the standards that our industry uses. And in that context, uh, you know, changing IPC standards, creating new IPC standards is a little bit like moving a mountain. It's, it takes a lot of people. It's a committee based um, organization with lots of countries heard from, so to speak. And, Lots of people who have good technical expertise, they want to impart some partisan commercial stuff. You know, you can always, in, in the cleaning standards, I can, I can read the standard and I can tell you who wrote certain parts of it because I can hear their voice in the words, right? You know, we know, we know who they all are. Um, but in your world, you, uh, Foresight created its own standards mm-hmm. and Again, without going too deep down the, the technical rabbit hole, because I'm, I'm really just illustrating a point uh, using this example, but we have cleanliness standards that have been in our industry for 50 years. And those cleanliness standards were developed 50 years ago and were for so long obsolete. So I said earlier in my intro that uh, I was, I was going to write, you march to the beat of your own drummer, but I realized that could be misinterpreted as a little crazy. But, but so I said, you, you, you march in front of the band. But um, definitely you are kind of in, in many ways marching to the beat of your own drummer because instead of, of, of um, just going along with the standard, you created this in-house standard of acceptable and not acceptable levels of contamination, not just in bulk, but based on specific contaminant species. You basically right. created this out of nowhere. Well, mm-hmm. not out of nowhere for you, but out of nowhere in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden this showed up and it was, it was, um, it it was very helpful, um, yet not incorporated into the standards. So, and I know that you sit on these standards committees, so um, you're not just sitting by waiting for the standard to catch up. You're kind of leading the charge and maybe the standard will catch up with you. Right. But uh, how frustrating is that to, be at the front of the pack, uh, waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. And is that sometimes a challenge if um, someone asks you, well, where does where is that quoted outside of your company? So right. uh, how much of your reputation and, and your sincerity and your research has to translate to the customer? That has to land on the customer so they can accept your numbers when an industry standard says something completely different or at least has historically. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Well, you have to, to step back a little bit and, and remember where we came from. We had process control tools and industry standards that said these were acceptable. We qualified these processes and built on this 50-year history of, of the way we've always done things. But then we changed everything materials, temperature, solder quality, solder reliability, solder alloys, uh, fluxes, no clean versus clean. All those variables changed and no one stepped up in the, the, the industry trade associations and the specs. Um, and we kept seeing these failures. So what we did was we took the failure and said, okay, these are the root causes. They're coming from these parts of the process, we go back and optimize that process, remove those root causes and clean up the, the, the effect. And we then qualify the new process and then we move down and monitor that process. And that's been our, our 
whole experience and, and we've collected that database of knowledge and have built DOEs around that to say, okay, here's where the, the, the limits are and here's how they change over time. Because when we were doing early fluxes and, and we were having a lot of failures due to, to incoming bareboard cleanliness from an amine hydrochloride hassle flux that was leaving high levels of chloride or bromide and the no cleaning processes were failing miserably, then you know we were looking at chloride. And when I first developed the, the localized extraction method and, and did electrical tests, we were focused on chloride and bromide. Well, when the weak organic acids came in and we started looking at those variables, we had to adjust because parasitic leakage was giving us intermittent performance issues as a precursor to any dendrite shorting that you could see but if you put them into elevated humidity, they would actually fail. So it was it was easy for us to be able to take this technology and move it, set limits and say, okay, the IPC didn't want to listen. Okay, that's fine. I have clients who have adopted these levels of, of cleanliness, um, you know, including Honeywell, including some of the high reliability clients. And it's, it's taking that technology and seeing them build on it and seeing them be successful and use that technology, which is the, the, the good feeling that I have. Seeing that the industry hasn't caught up yet from a spec standpoint, I don't know that they ever will. I don't think that they want the liability position. I don't think that they're pushing everything back and saying everything is a guideline document. You have to develop your own level of cleanliness and requirements for your application in your industry. So go, go figure out what that is, which means more work for us. Yeah. So yeah, the, the IPC doesn't want to do it. Fine. We'll, we'll help other people do it themselves. What were some of the uh, common misconceptions that people had uh, that, that you had? No, no, no. Let me rephrase that. What are some okay. of the most common misconceptions that people have about owning your own business? And I'll, I'll, put, I'll, I'll set that up. You ever seen these memes online mm -hmm. that says, this is what I do. This is what my parents think I do. This is what my friends think I do. And they're all different, right? All different, yeah. and, and usually what they actually do is far less interesting than what everyone thinks they do. So with right. that in mind, um, your friends, your, you know, maybe I call them civilians, people who aren't in this industry that know, oh yeah, Terry, yeah, man, he owns his own business. He's his entrepreneur. What are some of their misconceptions about owning a business? They've all agree on one thing. No one knows what I do. <laughs> They've all been to my lab. They've all seen the toys. They've all seen the equipment. Um, and they go, he works on electronics. And that's as far as my, that's my wife can, can get that far. That's about it. Um, but it, it allows me to, to step back and, and from a business standpoint, you know, I'm probably one of the best kept secrets in Kokomo. Most people don't even know that, that, you know, we have a very successful worldwide business. Um, you know, even the guys at, at GM and Delphi that I work with, you know, very few outside of the core of people working on problems, they don't know what we do. And, and so it's like, okay, which is fine with me. I, I've got enough work. Um, I, I, it's always good to have more work, but I, I have enough work. Um, but I think one of the biggest misconceptions for me when I started the business, from a business standpoint, I, I had that, that movie version of the, the boss walking down the, the aisle corridor and people coming up, handing him things to sign, and, and they go off and do something and, and things get done. 
I have that problem where people constantly coming into to me, sign this document, deal with this NDA, deal with the, this contract. Um, and I'm just like, I wish I could just get work done. You guys keep bringing me stuff and <laughs> that I, I, from a business standpoint that I, I'm like, okay, I, I see that it has to be done, but it's, it takes away from the real focus of what I, I perceive that I'm supposed to be doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find my friends generally romanticize the idea of being your own, uh, being your own boss. Right. I mean, that seems yeah. to be a lot of people's goal. Um, but there's certainly nothing romantic about it. There's a lot of sleepless nights. There's an awful lot of worry. There's, there's long, long hours. I remember in the early days, I would go in on Monday, come home on Wednesday, you know, oh, yeah. go Monday morning, come on Wednesday night. You know, we just yeah. pulled these all nighters, particularly when I was writing code, I used to write all the code for our machines and you get into oh, yeah. coding time, you know, it's, it's, hands of the clock just move like this and, and there's no perception of it. Um, what, uh, what advice would you give for entrepreneurs? I think the, between the recession and now in the pandemic, um, some people have, have found themselves at a new intersection uh, where mm -hmm. they need to find another job or maybe they've had this idea that they've had in their head for a long time and perhaps there's some people considering starting their own business, doing what you did, doing what I did and so many others have. Uh, what would your, having gone through everything you've gone through, having learned everything that you learned over this 29 year um, mm -hmm. journey, uh, what would you recommend? What's some of your key advice tips to budding entrepreneurs? Write down everything that you want to do. Put a clear business plan in place, but it doesn't have to be this great big story. It has to be a very concise very focused bullet points of, okay, here's what my product is. Here's how I'm going to actually do the, the, the work. And here's how I'm going to market the work. And here's how I'm going to fund the work. Basically break it down into those four key categories and then talk to people. Find out if people really want that service. They want that work. Do they, do they think it's valuable to, to pay for? And then kind of figure out where they're willing to pay. Um, I wish I would have done the, the, the pricing part of that early on, um, but I, I was forced to, <laughs> but it, it becomes uh, critical for that entrepreneur to really understand how do you communicate what you're doing, how you do it, um, especially to people who are not of the technology. Um, for me going in, when I first start a business and, and try to go into a bank and, and, and get a loan, they basically just laughed me out of the building because I couldn't explain to them in terms that they would understand that I was here to solve problems and work with manufacturers of electronic systems and, and do the things that we do. They just couldn't wrap their mind around it. They said, well, they go, those guys have engineers and, and labs and all that stuff. There's no reason for them to, to want to work with you. I said, well, I guess not. So, but yeah, I would, I would let, let the engine, the entrepreneur really work through, write it down, rewrite it down and rewrite it down until they got to that point where it was just a clean, simple sentence of what each of those bullets would need to be. It's funny, you know, we talked about what people think we do. Um, if I'm on vacation, we do a boys trip every year to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. And okay. we we'll go down there, we started lying about our careers because one of our, one of my buddies is a banker, a stockbroker. One's a banker. 
one fixes coffee, coffee making equipment, and we clean circuit boards. So it's like, yeah. oh, dud, 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 dud. So we, we just have fun with people. We just make up careers. And, uh, but before we started making up careers, it's so funny. This happens so many times, and this is probably the same in your world. So what do you do for a living? Well, we make machines that clean circuit boards to remove post-reflow contamination to avoid electrochemical <laughs> migration in, in the forms of dendritic growth and parasitic leakage and corrosion and label adhesion and coronal code. Oh, okay. And then they'll introduce me to their friend. Oh, this is Mike. He's from California. He's into computers. Yeah. <laughs> Just come down to computers. I, I fix all the time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or I didn't know boards get dirty. Yeah, that, that too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, last question. I asked this to all my guests. Um, in, in the world of, of skill and luck, uh, knowing it probably takes a little bit of both, what do you attribute your business success to in percentages? What percentage of skill, what percentage of luck? I would say 50-50. That's very I generous. It, I, I expected well, you to be a little bit more on the skill side. I think you're being, well, I think you're being um, uh, cautious there. Well, I, I think that if the industry hadn't made this major change, you know, do the Clean Air Act, there you, you know, there would not have been a, a need for for what I do, right? Um, in you know, in those early days. So for me, yeah, I I'm very very happy that we made the change from ozone depleting chemicals um, and we switched to cleaning and no clean and and dealing with those those real risk elements. But um, but I'd say fifty percent was luck just yeah. timing and, and you know but seeing the handwriting on the wall being able to to bring a technology to the industry 50 percent skill yeah absolutely yeah you can't get by without the skill and luck is always uh, a magnifier of skill right so yeah. I, I, i'm happy to have both in in my life as well and I, I think i would give it the same odds i think it would be 50 50 because you know you got to start off with some skill and and then uh, and pray for luck <laughs> or divine guidance or something. Yeah. Um, something that, you know, we need the seas to part once in a while uh, before we drown. Exactly. So yeah. You know, um, early conferences, good papers, you know, gave us that, that visibility. And, and, you know, I borrowed a buddy's uh, car to drive to Atlanta to one of my first conferences. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was a great three days, um, you know, and, but I didn't have a car that would, would make it that far. Um, in those days. So it was like, okay, let's, let's do this and let's do it right. So, yeah, you know, you do what you have to do. That's that entrepreneurial mm -hmm. spirit, right? You just do what you yeah. have to do. There's not a question of can, it's just a question of how and when, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it, you just find a way to do it. Uh, well, Terry, this is great. I've wanted to talk to you for a while. Um, I've always admired your business. We, we work together with similar mm -hmm. with, you know, we share a lot of customers. So, uh, it's always been good to work with you and your team. And um, just working with your team, I know that there's some good stuff going on there um, from top. I hate to use the word top down because I'm not insinuating anyone is down. But, but you know, from no. senior management to the people who actually do all the real work, um, yeah. uh, there's um, some good vibes coming out of your company. Uh, and I appreciate uh, you spending time with me today and my audience. And I, I don't think I need to wish you luck. Um, but... I'll, I'll take it because you have that I'll, you have I'll enough skill but I'll, I'll throw as much luck your way as possible good luck in the future and and, and, back at you. and, and I appreciate the opportunity Mike and, and it, it's always been a great pleasure working alongside you especially on committees 
and, and just going in and knowing that I've got someone who has similar mindset and understanding of, of where we need to be and, and what we need to focus on this as a, a reliability element in the industry. So thank you very much for all your support. That sounds great. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and uh, I'll look forward to catching up with you at a show. Maybe we can go out and have a little stogie and a, and a, and a, and a, a glass or something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, that's been my, my second passion is we've, we've got some friends. We've kind of formed a, a distillery. So working through those side, side of the issues, um, you know, that's been another stress relief for me is, is uh, starting another company. So it's been fun. You would be the second, and we'll come back and talk to you if you do that. I, I interviewed uh, someone from um, uh, Nano Dimension. They make basically okay. a, a print circuit board printer. It literally is like an inkjet printer that prints dielectric yep. material and conductive silver ink. And after a few thousand passes, you have a board with vias and ground planes and markings. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's like Star Trek. You know, you know when they order food and the door opens and there's yep. a meal in there. I mean, it's like that, right? Um, but at the uh, end of the interview, he, he talked about um, a distillery that they started called Milk and Honey, and they're in Israel. Oh. They, they actually oh, are making great. whiskey in Israel, not known for uh, no. whiskey, right? Not, 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 um, yeah, not a whiskey. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's... But uh, they, they uh, it's called Milk and Honey. They've won a bunch of awards. And, and anyway, so uh, you, it would be great if you could do that. If so, definitely come back on the show, and we'll talk a little bit of technical stuff and a lot of whiskey. I love that. Oh, bourbon. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, Terry. Uh, all the best to you and your family and, uh, and your team. And I'll look forward to seeing you face to face. Soon. All right. Take care. All right, Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Concept to Creation podcast. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, please be sure and subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and virtually wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this in the car and you would like to see the video version of this, as soon as you get home, as soon as you get back to the office, be sure and search for us on our YouTube channel, the Concept of Creation YouTube channel. When you're on the YouTube channel, be sure and hit the subscribe button and hit that bell icon so you'll be notified of new episodes as soon as they're released. We do release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Living free and I was meant to be free. Meant to be free.